Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 30th, 2022, the last day of June. It's been quite a month. The stock market has collapsed, and it's the worst month for about 10 or 20 years of the stock market. We've had a um, huge amount of news about uh, January 6th, uh, and Donald Trump remains in the news. Lots of news about gun control. The one thing that we haven't had a lot of news about, for better or worse, is the war in Ukraine. When I checked this morning on the Wall Street, uh, not on the Wall Street Journal, on the Washington Post, which is one of the two leading liberal progressive newspapers uh, in, in the United States. There wasn't a single piece um, about uh, Ukraine in its headlines. Um, and of course, we a lot of dominance of uh, the, the, uh, the abortion issue as well. The Wall Street Journal, uh, Joe Biden is photographs talking about supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. Uh, I'm guessing that photo was designed in some ways to undermine Biden. Um, doesn't make him look very good. The Wall Street Journal is not a great admirer of Joe Biden. Um, the Guardian, the London Guardian, a non-American newspaper, of course, leads with a story about the war. Um, but it's the headlines about what the Kremlin is saying, not what the West is saying. Meanwhile, the New York Times, which is I guess, if anything, the voice of American media has three interesting stories today um, about uh, Ukraine. None of them are dominant headlines. One is about Ukraine driving Russian forces from Snake Island, a setback for Moscow. For those people watching this war carefully, I don't suppose many of you are. Uh, one, a critic of uh, a critique of Biden's inability. Um, to come to some sort of end game on Ukraine in his Europe trip and also to achieve cheaper gas. Uh, and thirdly, and this is perhaps the most um, chilling piece of this trinity of news stories in the New York Times, um, a story about how Vladimir Putin is shifting out of his wartime crisis mode and he is, according to the Times, patient and confident. Seems as if then, uh, Putin is winning the war, judging at least from the headlines today and the lack of coverage. Uh, what a difference three or four months makes. Back in early March of this year, I had the Tufts University professor and uh, Russia expert Chris Miller on the show talking about the politics of uh, Ukraine, uh, Putinomics in the Ukrainian war. Back then, we were all very positive and optimistic about taking Putin on in Ukraine all very positive and optimistic about the inefficiencies of Putinomics in this war. Uh, four or five months on, I'm not so sure. We've got Chris back with us. Chris, am I exaggerating um, the pessimism uh, of this war? Or am I just another example of someone who's got bored with this thing and moved on to the next? Well, I think the, the war has issued a entered a sort of depressing phase. It's it's now very clearly a war of attrition in which both side is trying to bleed the other uh, and thereby induce it to give up its political aims. And like all wars of attrition, 
This one seems likely to last for some time. It's imposing really substantial costs on the militaries of both sides, but also uh, on the civilians where the, the conflict is being fought. And the effects not only felt in Ukraine, as you noted, they're felt uh, internationally because of the commodity price spikes that are caused by the disruptions of Ukrainian grain shipments and uh, Russian natural gas and oil shipments. So the cost of the war certainly are becoming clearer, even though in many ways the situation in the battlefield has actually little changed from, say, two months ago, where hardly any territory has changed hands over that time period. I don't want to turn this, Chris, into a sports game. Obviously, it's a tragic war on many different levels and fronts. Um, but are the Russians and Putin winning this war, given the fact that not much has changed, given the fact it's not in the headlines, given the fact that um, they are holding their own? We had so many stories at the beginning of this war about how incompetent and inefficient the Russians were, about Ukrainian heroism, about the fact that there would be a political rebellion perhaps in Russia itself. None of these things have happened. So if there is a winner and a loser, maybe not Ukraine is losing, but certainly Russia is winning, isn't it? Well, if you start with the initial war aims that Putin set out when he launched the invasion, the goal was to establish control over all of Ukraine. Uh, maybe not completely integrating Ukraine into Russia, but at least making clear that Ukraine was a subservient state to the Kremlin. And I think by that metric, Russia has failed. Uh, Ukraine is going to remain independent under its own political leadership uh, for the foreseeable future. But what's not clear is whether Ukraine will have any success in expelling the Russians uh, from their territory. They had some success around Kiev in the early weeks of the war, but now as the war has entered this new attritional phase, there's been uh, much less progress. And in some regions, the opposite, uh, Ukraine has actually lost new territory uh, to the Russians. So in that more limited sense, Russia's winning. It's winning and showing it can hold Ukrainian territory. It's losing in its broader effort to assert dominance over the entirety of the country. Chris, your academic expertise is on the Russian and Soviet economy. Your last book was We Shall Be Masters, Russian Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin. You also wrote The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy. We were told, and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, that the sanctions would affect this, that we were told at the beginning, four or five months ago, that sanctions would force Putin to come to the negotiating table that the Russian economy would not be able to survive sanctions. Was this wrong? What is the situation in Russia in terms of sanctions? Well, I would say first off that most policymakers who designed the sanctions in the US, Europe, and in other countries didn't expect that sanctions would, in fact, drive Putin to the negotiating table in a matter of uh, weeks or months. I think that was always a an overly optimistic view that was um, not really embraced by the policymakers who who set these sanctions up. But it's certainly the case uh, that sanctions are uh, beginning to bite in Russia. If you look, for example, at automobile production in Russia, it's down by 97% compared to a year ago uh, across the Russian manufacturing sector. There's huge declines uh, in the production of manufactured goods. And we don't 
have good data uh, via open sources into Russian defense production, but all of the evidence suggests that there are substantial issues that Russia is facing because of the sanctions and export controls in rehabilitating its military equipment as well. So in, in that sense, the sanctions are having an effect. Is it an effect of forcing Putin to surrender or to leave Ukraine immediately? No, certainly not. Uh, but it wouldn't be right to say that sanctions aren't having an impact. And I think to the contrary, their impact is felt more and more by Russia as each week passes. Chris, I, I've read some pieces about the possibility of a Russian default, an economic default. Is that just wishful thinking? And if it happens, what difference does that actually make? Well, depending on where you look in Russia, uh, certain institutions have already begun defaulting on uh, their debt. The Russian government uh, is formally in default, although this doesn't really mean much in economic terms. Uh, many Russian state-owned firms uh, have resources for now to fund themselves, but are facing some financial difficulty. Uh, but the, the challenge that Russia is going to face is not primarily a financial challenge. It's not a problem of paying its bills. It's a problem of acquiring the components that a modern economy needs to function, to fix its trains when trains get broken, to build cars and its auto factories, to acquire the machinery needed to run uh, in, in food processing facilities. This is the type of equipment that Russia is struggling and will continue to struggle uh, to acquire. And it's going to be measured not in terms of uh, dollars or budgets not getting balanced. It'll be measured in terms of uh, equipment and, uh, and and manufactured goods not being produced. And that's really where you're seeing the impact of sanctions being felt. Now, that that's a, a real impact on the size of the Russian economy, which is entering a, a, a recession as we speak, and is also having a really substantial impact on uh, Russian living standards. Real wages in Russia have also been falling pretty substantially as the average Russian begins to feel the cost of the uh, sanctions and the recession that they've caused. What about the impact on ordinary Russians? I mean, obviously, um, this hasn't, this is not good from the point of view of the living standards of ordinary Russians. But we've had a number of conversations on the show about the way in which many Russians outside the main cities, Russians who aren't intellectuals, who aren't wealthy, are actually, if anything, more supportive of Putin now than they were a few months ago. What's your take on the potential for domestic resistance, perhaps even a domestic uprising to what Putin's doing, either from within the population or perhaps even from within the military? It's hard to say with much certainty what the Russian populace thinks. We've got opinion polls, but no one puts much faith in opinion polls in Putin's Russia in general, and especially in wartime. Certainly, there's been no organized opposition uh, to the war that's materialized, but it's also clear that the Russian government is afraid of uh, asking much of the population in favor of the war. In Russia, it's not called a war. It's um, it's dangerous to call it a war. It's a special military operation, suggesting that it's limited in scope. And the Russian government has been very hesitant to call up the number of draftees that it probably needs to successfully prosecute the war because it doesn't think uh, Russians are willing to go fight in large numbers in the Donbass. So the Russian government is clearly hesitant about making this a, a costly war from the perspective of the average Russian. But I don't think that we should expect a, a popular uprising anytime soon. And indeed, if you look historically uh, in Russia, both during the Soviet period and, and the time of the czars, 
political change in Russia usually happened via palace coups or party intrigue rather than uh, from the streets. And it's almost impossible to have any sort of clarity as to what the Russian elites and the security service chieftains are thinking. But if there's going to be political change in Russia, it's going to come, I think, in no small part, thanks to them. I don't expect it to happen soon, but that's where I'd be looking uh, for uh, any sense of the future of Russian politics. But there have been great changes in Russian history through war, particularly through uh, embarrassingly inept war. The, the, the Russo-Japanese war, of course, comes to mind as the cause of the revolution of 1905. And my understanding, and perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, I mean, the, the, the incompetence and the stupidity of the war in Afghanistan contributed to the, the crisis and the collapse of the Soviet regime. Isn't that true? That, that's certainly right. Those are, are both good examples of that phenomenon. And I think we could be seeing something similar here in the very early stages. I think it's worth remembering that in the Afghanistan case, it took a decade of fighting uh, in Afghanistan and a very bloody fighting of serious losses on the Soviet side uh, before the Soviet Union collapsed. And of course, that was just one of, of a variety of factors that led to the Soviet Union's um, collapse. I think in, in this case, uh, the Russian military is almost certainly already in the process of trying to explain what went so wrong relative to pre-war expectations. They're trying to shift blame on other parts of the Russian political system that are restraining them from using the force that they want to use, giving them political objectives that are uh, impossible to um, apply. But right now, it doesn't seem like there's any sort of political ramifications of Russia's military failures. And I think what's striking is that Russian casualties uh, in the war against Ukraine over the past four months are probably something comparable to Russian casualties in the Afghanistan war, which took 10 years. Uh, and yet, despite these substantially higher casualties, uh, now, compared to the far shorter period of fighting, there hasn't been a big backlash from either the military uh, or society about the way the war has been prosecuted. But those are real deaths, real families, real mourning. I, I mean, you can't dress this stuff up, can you? No, you, you can't. And, and if you follow Russian social media, there certainly has been some criticism um, of the losses and the speed with which losses have come. But it's not been organized enough. Uh, not been directed enough at the political elites to amount to any sort of organized movement against the uh, status quo or against Putin personally. Let's go back to Putin. Uh, New York Times says patient and confident. Those are eerie, chilling words. Is he back uh, to where he wants to be, Vladimir Putin? Lots of rumors at the beginning about him being sick and looking puffy and losing control and palace coups, but doesn't seem to have been affected. Is he performing as Putin does in this sort of with this Machiavellian efficiency, this brutal force that he seems so expert at? Well, certainly that's the image he's trying to project. And I guess if the New York Times is reporting it as fact, that means he's having some success in projecting it. Um, but it seems to me hard to describe the Russian war thus far is an extraordinary success for Putin as a as a Machiavellian leader. Instead, the war has been extraordinarily costly and achieved hardly any of Russia's initial war aims. It's left Russia in a much more dangerous position with, with its military degraded and um, fully occupied in Ukraine for the foreseeable future. 
so it, it, in that sense, I, I I think we should be skeptical of uh, claims that Putin is uh, is a sort of brilliant Machiavellian wartime leader. I think he's certainly trying to give that image, but the reality is. Uh, I suspect much more that Putin is desperately trying to achieve something that looks like victory from a situation that actually probably feels more like defeat. Chris, you came on my radar, at least you're an excellent um, op-ed in the New York Times from late February of this year, entitled, Why is Putin at war again? Because he keeps winning. I think that was one of the pieces that forced the West to wake up to what he was doing and the need to confront him. If Putin isn't doing a great job, it seems to be getting away with it. What's the scorecard from your point of view on the West? How well have, and I use this word carefully, we performed, the Europeans and the, the United States? Well, on the, on the positive side, the West has given Ukraine a whole lot of uh, support, military, diplomatic, economic, that's helped keep Ukraine afloat during these four months of conflict. I think on the negative side, we find ourselves in a situation where we're catching up to reality. If, if you rewind the clock four months, the debate in places like Washington and Berlin was whether or not it would be too controversial to give Ukraine a small number of anti-tank missiles. Uh, and now uh, every major Western power is uh, giving Ukraine huge stocks of weaponry of almost all types. And that to me suggests that Western leaders were asleep at the wheel and the need to support Ukraine militarily, not just earlier this year, but over the past several years to prepare for the invasion that was coming. Um, but from the perspective of uh, February 24th, once we found ourselves in a situation of trying to support Ukraine as it fended off the Russians, I think Western leaders have done a, a reasonable job given the circumstances. Supposedly the West or, or the Ukrainians are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, perhaps outplanned. What, why shouldn't the West just get involved? Why not call Putin's bluff? Is this something that do you think any Western leaders, certainly perhaps in, in Eastern Europe, would like to happen? Well, I, I think most Western leaders have already clearly stated they'd be unwilling to get involved in any fashion it seems very unlikely to me, even the most limited proposals, such as escorting um, Ukrainian commercial shipping in and out of Odessa port has been seen as a non-starter in Washington and in every major European capital. So there's a, a very clear, I think, consensus among Western leaders that there's gonna be no direct military involvement, even though there's also a consensus that there will be a whole lot of indirect involvement by supplying the Ukrainians with equipment, with intelligence, with training, with other types of support. What about the message, um, Chris, uh, about why why the West is involved? I had Stephen Wertheim, Carnegie Endowment Scholar on the show a couple of weeks ago, suggesting that Biden made a mistake in talking about democracy, defending democracy in Ukraine. He should have been supporting sovereignty. Has Biden done a good job explaining why the United States need to support Ukraine? I think I found the arguments that he set out relatively compelling. One can debate whether democracy or sovereignty is the best description of what the U.S. is trying to support. But it's a big distinction, particularly Wertheim stresses, because of Ukraine's rather patchy performance when it comes to democracy. You know, I think we could get into the nitty gritty of 
Ukrainian pol domestic politics over the past couple of decades. I don't know that it really matters in this case. I think the question is who ought to determine the future of Ukraine, the Ukrainian people or the Russian people or the Ukrainian people or the Russian leadership. Um, whether you describe that as sovereignty or democracy seems a little bit like political theory hair splitting to me. I think the, the core question is, is fairly clear. What about this whole issue of uh, NATO and its expansion? Charles Kupchan, another distinguished foreign, American foreign policy expert, came on the show in April suggesting that Putin had a case for pushing back against the, the growth of NATO. He seems to have encouraged its growth because of this invasion. Um, you don't hear this neo-realist argument anymore almost vindicating Putin's invasion, not that Kupchan was doing that. Has the war changed any of these broader conversations about NATO and Russia and the West? Well, I think it has in no small part because Russia's description has changed markedly. Uh, the Russian leadership no longer focuses on the potential future membership of Ukraine and NATO is, a, is an important issue. Putin himself has described uh, in multiple occasions his goal is returning, quote unquote, uh, Russia's lands to Russia. And it's not only Putin. Uh, key Russian foreign policy thinkers have ditched the idea of halting NATO expansion as the goal and instead embraced territorial expansion for Russia as the goal. And I don't know whether this was always the way that every Russian conceptualized the goal of their foreign policy in Ukraine, but it certainly does seem like some of the rhetoric has been lifted in Moscow and some of the um, more zero-sum thinking uh, has become more apparent. And Putin himself regularly cites Peter the Great and Catherine the Great as role models uh, as for what he's trying to accomplish in Ukraine. And of course, their, their successes weren't in preventing Ukraine from joining NATO. Their successes were in acquiring Ukrainian territory for the Russian Empire. So if we stand back, as Putin's trying to do and historicize this in the context of glorious Russian episodes in history, how are we going to remember, Chris, this war? Um, right from the beginning, lots we've had lots of conversations about what Ukraine really is about. People, Peter Pomerantsev, for example, I'm sure you know his work, suggests that this invasion of Ukraine isn't really about Ukraine. We've had lots of debates about whether this might be the first global war about globalization itself. How do you think historians are going to remember this war? I'll give you a cop-out answer, which is that it's too soon to tell because the result of the war is still very much an open question. The, the war could well end in something that looks much more like a Russian victory if Ukraine's ability to fight uh, dissolves over the coming months if Western support dissipates and if Russia takes more territory. It's equally plausible that the war could end with something that looks like a decisive Ukrainian victory if Ukraine manages to counterattack over the coming months and Russian uh, military forces in the Donbass and in Kherson begin to, <coughs> excuse me, begin to lose their efficacy. So the war is still very much an open question. And I think the historical assessment of the war will depend on how actually it ends. You're not willing to take any risks, Chris, and suggest how you think it's going to end, what your sense is at this point? No, I, I still think it is very much, uh, um, very much could go both ways, which is why Western policy, Ukrainian decisions, and also Russian decisions right now are, are really so important in shaping the final result. I want to get to that piece because I think that's probably the most important 
part of this conversation. We'll end on that. But but I'd like your comments on 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 what this has all done to Ukraine. Zelensky has appeared as this sort of celebrity, almost social media figure. What's your take on what Zelensky is trying to do? Has he been successful, and 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 how he's thought of within Ukraine itself? Well, all of the evidence suggests that Zelensky remains highly popular in Ukraine. He's uh, appreciated for. Uh, his uh, his service as a wartime leader and leading Ukraine in the war is the most popular thing he's done as Ukraine's president. The the evidence from Ukraine also suggests that Ukrainian public opinion is still very strongly in favor of pursuing the war until Ukraine gets it all of its territory back, or at least all of the territory that it's lost since February 24th. Uh, and Zelensky is seen as the only person who can plausibly lead Ukraine in that struggle. And so all of the debates before February 24th in Ukrainian politics at this point have basically been set to the, to the side, debates about oligarchs, debates about uh, different pieces of legislation uh, now all seem like secondary concerns relative to the question of can Ukraine find a way to win the war. Uh, and for Zelensky, this is, I think, a uh, it's obviously a struggle that will define his presidency of Ukraine uh, and his ability to succeed or fail um, is, is going to be what defines his legacy. What about the long term impact of what Catherine Belton, the prize winning, very brave FT journalist, describes as KGB capitalism, the way in which Putin's KGB style capitalism seems to have, at least according to Belton, take over the world. She got sued in London courts by him. Fortunately, she's won it. This comes up all the time. I had Dan McCrum on the show recently, the FT journalist who wrote a book about the scandal, the Wirecard scandal, suggesting that a lot of that came from Russia and the principal villain in the German villain in the Wirecard scandal now is in Moscow. Did a show a couple of days ago with Jamie Bartlett on the crypto queen, the, 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 the one coin scandal, which tens of billions of dollars were stolen. She seems to have had very close connections with Moscow. Is it possible that this Ukrainian war will once, once and for all put an end to the, the rotten money global economics, which seemed to rule before, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Is the game up? for KGB capitalism, or are we too early to say on that as well? I think we're too early to say on that front. It, it's clear that there will be much less Russian money in, uh, in Western markets simply because the sanctions make so many of the uh, former business models of uh, oligarchs illegal. Um, but as for Russian money elsewhere, I'm not so sure. We've seen a diversion, for example, of Russian money away from places like London or Switzerland, but towards uh, new areas like Dubai, which is now flooded with uh, Russian oligarchs' yachts and uh, Russians are looking for a place to park their cash. So I suspect that this is more a story of diversion and less a story of the end of Russian money as a force in international politics. And I think one of the stories to watch is going to be Russia's relationship with and Russia's impact on uh, these new uh, locations for Russian money laundering and for Russians to put their cash abroad. Is the Russian reputation holding outside the West, in the Gulf, in India, in what used to be called the non-aligned world? 
I think broadly it is. Uh, outside of the West, there's much less interest in the question of Ukraine. Uh, in many countries, there's not seen to be any sort of moral relevance of the war or direct uh, impact of the war on people's lives. And in those uh, in those locations, uh, no one really judges Russia for going to war or they set aside the question of morality and ethics and prefer to do business with uh, whoever they're able to do business with. Lots of lots of pieces about how to talk to Americans about Ukraine. Um, how should Amer how should we and again the political establishment talk to Americans and how should Americans talk to the world, Chris, about Ukraine? What's the message? Well, the key challenge over the coming months is going to be dealing with the economic impact of the war and of Russia's response to the war on uh, on international markets and and therefore on the U.S. And when you look at rising energy prices, rising food prices, a lot of this is driven. Um, by the war and explaining how this has happened and also devising policies to deal with it uh, is a key challenge, not only for the U.S., but even more so for Europe, where the impact of rising energy prices is even more acute. Well, finally, Chris, let's get on to the real issue, which is how we're going to get to peace, for better or worse. We had Chris Blackman on the show, who wrote an important book about peace, why we fight, the roots of war and the paths to peace. He gave five, in his language, logical reasons why Putin went to war in Ukraine. If we can figure this stuff out, then we can figure out how to get to peace. Are the principal actors in this war, Putin, the West, and Zelensky, are they thinking in terms of end games? I think everyone is thinking in terms of end games. They just have different end games in mind. And the question is whose end game will be closest to whatever endgame emerges. I think we should also recognize that an endgame might not be a permanent peace. That in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, since 2014, we've seen already two ceasefires, Minsk one and Minsk two, as they were called. And we may well see another ceasefire that isn't a permanent peace as well. The, the question of the ceasefire is, Will Ukraine ever be willing to sign a ceasefire that sees Russia occupying even more of its territory? Or will Russia be willing to relinquish its territory in exchange for a ceasefire? And right now, the answer to both those questions seems to be no. And I don't think we're going to get a ceasefire until either Russia or Ukraine changes its view on one or both of those questions. And how are they going to change that view? Would it be the West putting pressure on Ukraine? Might it be China putting pressure on Russia? Do we need external international players in this? That's how these wars usually get settled in the end. I think external pressure will play some role, but far more important will be willingness to fight on in Ukraine and in Russia. Uh, as losses mount, as the cost rises, uh, the question will become much more acute for both the Russians and the Ukrainians. Are they willing to keep fighting? And the question, in my view, is who folds first? And the worst case scenario is what? Syria, Bosnia, this unresolved situation where it just war goes on endlessly? Well, that's right. We're in almost a decade of civil war in Syria at varying levels of intensity at various times. That would certainly be a depressing, but I'm afraid plausible uh, template for how this conflict might end. Not very cheerful, Chris, is it? 
Uh, I'm afraid it's not, but I think we're we're best off recognizing just what type of situation we may well be in. Now, cheer us up to, to, to end. What else have you been reading, Chris? Anything more cheerful than than Russian policy or Russian war in Ukraine? Well, to, to understand Russian politics, I always like studying the politics of other countries that border Russia and have some similar issues to it. I've just finished an excellent book of essays on Turkish politics by a scholar named Ruben Silverman. Uh, and I think what stands out is the many similarities, of course, great differences, but many similarities between uh, Russian and, and Turkish politics that really shines a light on, uh, on, on how the Putin system operates, but also on the broader themes that animate Russian politics. So I recommend the book highly.